Well, welcome to you all. Welcome to the third London Review of International Law annual lecture, where we are absolutely delighted to have with us Professor Sheila Jasanoff. Professor Jasanoff is currently visiting us as a Shimizu professor at the LSE Law Department from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government, where she is Fortsheimer Professor of Science and Technology Studies. A pioneer and leader in the field of STS, Professor Jasanoff is one of those rare academics whose work shapes disciplinary boundaries much more than it is shaped by them. Trained as a lawyer, but with an imagination and a set of insistent questions which very quickly took her beyond the boundaries of that discipline, her, work, her body of work has been one of the core pillars around which the field of science and technology studies has emerged and oriented itself. Her early work on the way that scientific truths are contested and constructed in the courts helped a generation of legal scholars to think afresh the relationship between law and fact as a co-produced duality. And through a series of detailed studies of biotechnology regulation, environmental regimes, and much more, she has painstakingly built for us a deep and highly differentiated account of particular techniques, commitments, practices, and criteria of validity of those distinct bodies of knowledge which emerge in the context of what we now know, in part as a result of this work, as regulatory science. This detailed knowledge has enabled her in more recent work to explore cross-national differences from a comparative perspective uh, 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 of the management and resolution of uh, juridical scientific disputes uh, from uh, across the transatlantic divide. Her version of STS has always been distinctly constructivist in its orientation, and her deployment and elaboration over the last three books, the more recent three books, of the core concept of uh, co-production, bioconstitutionalism, and socio-technical imaginaries show her still to be at the leading edge of theoretical innovation in the field. And as a result of all this work over more than 30 years, she has managed to achieve what few others do. That is to say, to create a home for a style and a mode of inquiry which really had no place to be before she came along, and which certainly would never have been able to flourish in the way that it does within the disciplinary confines uh, which she inherited. So she has helped to create a field, and much more than that, she is in many ways the glue that holds together that field's community of practice, not just through the power of her ideas, but by her ceaseless and boundlessly generous engagement with colleagues. Professor Jasanoff has, as a result, been an inspiration to generations of younger scholars. Indeed, many of you here tonight will, I suspect, be here precisely because of that spark of inspiration, the moment of excitement that so many of you have had when reading Professor Jasanoff's work or through conversing with her. And that is exactly the kind of scholarship and the kind of scholar which the London Review of International Law loves to showcase and to celebrate. Interdisciplinary, innovative, generous-spirited, always curious. The London Review of International Law, for those few of you who don't know, is a relatively young legal journal published and supported by Oxford University Press, 
which seeks to capture the ways in which received ideas in international law are being challenged and reshaped by new subject matters, new participants, new conceptual apparatuses, and new cross-disciplinary connections. We're just now publishing our fourth volume, and with the support of OUP and the LSE and SOAS, we've been able to establish this annual lecture series in honour of a former colleague, Deborah Cass. Last year, Judith Butler dazzled us with her lecture on human shields. This year, we are immensely proud to have Professor Sheila Jasanoff present to us on the topic of subjects of reason, goods, markets, and imaginaries of the global future. Thank you, Professor Jasanoff, for your time, and we look forward very much to your thoughts. Good evening. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking Andrew for that lovely and extremely kind introduction, and my other friends and colleagues at the LSE for inviting me to give this very special lecture tonight. It's a particular pleasure, as well as a great honor, to give a public lecture at this university, indeed in this building. A quick look at the LSE website shows that the old building, so-called, was constructed between 1920 and 1923, which means it would have been just in place when my father arrived here as a young man to study economics with Harold Blasky around about 1928. At that time, I suppose this was the new academic building. Uh, such an important strand in my, of my family history runs through these halls and the surrounding streets that it feels almost ordained that my paths, too, should have led here in due course. Today, I probably have more friends packed into a few square miles around the LSE than I do around Harvard back in my Cambridge. Many of you are in the audience today. I'd like to thank you all for joining me tonight. I come to this evening's talk with three sets of concerns that for me are becoming increasingly interlinked. Beginning close to home and extending outward, uh, these are with disciplines and interdisciplinarity, as Andrew has already mentioned, with justice and the sense of justice, and with a place of critique. The title of tonight's lecture, Subjects of Reason, touches on all three, as I will hope to show you. As Andrew also said in his introduction, interdisciplinarity, in the sense of a place between all of those classical fields with one-word names, has been my home, some might say my cross. I've been working for many years at the intersection of law, that is just one word, my field of academic training, and science and technology studies, or STS, the field which I've helped to build and in which I've made my academic home for much of my working life. And I have to say it's been against a lot of um, pressures back from people saying things like, if it has studies and the title, it doesn't deserve to be a field. Uh, and also the problem that STS does not stand for any one thing, either for its practitioners or even officially, because it can stand for science and technology studies or science, technology, and society. And I've presided over entities with both names, though I've always been doing, I think, the same thing. So those are challenges. So connecting fields has been exciting but not easy work. The trouble begins with law on the one hand and science and technology on the other. 
In spite of their profoundly important ordering influences on human lives and societies, law and science share no easy conceptual bridges to bring them together and their ways of thought into convergence. There's no buzzword such as rational choice that makes people from economics and political science, the two names that define this great institution, feel that they're speaking the same language even if in different registers. If there is such a word at all for science and law, it is the profoundly de-skilling term illiteracy. Oddly, both law and science subscribe these days to to a myth of fallenness that hampers productive critical thinking at their intersections. Law professors, judges, scientists, and the mainstream media all agree that the legal profession's lack of scientific knowledge is a huge barrier to progress and good governance. Law on this view is always lagging because it cannot keep up with the pressures for advancement that come always and only from the innovative forces of science and technology. In 1897, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, whom you see there a little bit distended sideways, um, famously addressed Harvard Law School students about how to attune the law to social ends. It seems to me, he said, that every lawyer, might, every lawyer ought to seek an understanding of economics. Uh, today, Holmes's wish is almost a bromide. Harvard Law students are busily engaged in studying finance and cross-registering with the business school. Reformist pedagogical zeal has turned instead to the notion of science literacy for lawyers. Of course, such turns of the wheel in expectations of what professionals need to know is itself a topic for STS exploration, a paradigm shift in the intellectual world. But it would take us far afield from the questions I'd like to raise with you tonight. Those questions, first and foremost, center on science and law as linked motors that power our ways of being in the world. In competition or in collaboration, science and law shape our sense of what is possible to do, what is worth doing, and what should be done. Both claim a kind of universalism and hence are implicated in creating the understandings that span political and cultural space. Science renders universally truthful representations, or so it is thought, of nature. Law inscribes on society behaviors that equally are taken to be enduringly natural. Both institutions, too, govern us. One could point around this room at any of the objects surrounding us, whether fixed, like tables and chairs, or mobile, like phones and laptops, visible like the lights above us, or invisible like the software driving my slides. Each in its way enables our coming together. Each constrains how exactly we're doing so. We're in this sense subjects of our own scientific and legal ingenuity as tool makers and as rule makers, and increasingly the boundaries between rules and tools is not so clearly discernible. Strangely, STS is of less help than one might think in filling the intellectual void between law and science. STS scholars have done massive amounts of work to uncover the hybridity and heterogeneity of a world reconfigured by humans in an era now fashionably called the Anthropocene. In the process, STS has made 
most high-sounding things such as truth, objectivity, and reason quite mundane. This is the opposite of the move made by Francis Thompson, Victorian poet, vagrant, addict, who in his posthumous text on the kingdom of God wrote about divinity lurking in ordinary things. The angels keep their ancient places, turn but a stone and start a wing. The STS scholar is more apt to take the angelic and ask what work was done to persuade people of the existence of an otherworldly realm, to bring any thought of the sublime firmly back to earth, turning ideas, ideals, and ideologies all into materialities. A standard analytic move in STS is to say, don't ask what a thing is or means, ask what makes it work and what had to be done to make it so. Justice Holmes, intent on turning doctrinal law to practical economics, would surely have agreed with this pragmatic shift. But despite all of SCS's cleverness in revealing the hybrid heterogeneous networks that sustain us, despite all of our histories of how things travel, how black boxes are not really black inside, and how the illusion of scientific and technological purity is made and sustained, there remain issues that law concerns itself with that are not so easily made mundane or material. We're confronting in the West, especially in Europe, an immigrant crisis born of inequality, oppression, and violence. We can speak of the material conditions that turned these millions out of their homelands, weapons of war, scarcity of food and water, destroyed houses and habitats. But the moral questions are the ones that predominate as Parliament in this country acknowledged just last Monday in its extraordinary debate on whether U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump should be allowed entry into Britain. I have to say, despite my own fairly extensive command of the Queen's English, I'd never heard the term WASC before. Um, I'll be sure to use it back home. Uh, And let's not forget that before Prime Minister Narendra Modi became best buddies with Barack Obama, Modi was for years denied entry to the United States for his role, or his alleged role, in inciting and condoning the 2002 communal riots in Gujarat. There is a justice dimension to the refugee question that our politicians cannot evade. What do we owe to the victims, and what place, if any, do these homeless millions on the move have in the sovereign constitutional systems that we have erected around and within our own borders. There are, of course, technological dimensions to all such questions, because in this world, on the move, uh, science and technology fuel most of our transnational actions and interactions. We have, for instance, designed currencies and financial instruments that sustain virtual, even fantastic, worlds of exchange, credit default swaps, the euro, bitcoin, how they perform their illusionistic magic or fail to do so, as this week's news from World Financial Markets has again brought home, is a topic addressed by STS scholars interested in the market itself as a technological space and as a product of financial instruments. 
But what new solidarities are made and uh, also unmade in all of our technologically mediated creativity? What happens to ancient lines of power and responsibility? And who can be held accountable for redress when things go wrong or awry? I think of that every time I uh, check in to go on a flight. And one of the questions is, have you got a redress number? And I always wonder what would happen if I had that number. But this text tells you a little bit about where that number comes from, for instance. I want then to set at the center of my inquiry tonight the questions of justice and global governance in a modernity that we can see as the communal work product of science, technology, and law. This is a world in which things are increasingly fluid with connections between space, matter, and even time refusing to abide by old rules of stability and sustainability. Human bodies are on the move as never before, and not only in the form of refugees, deconstructed through the representational languages of biology and information, bodies themselves have become layered and mutable, their attributes available for storage, sale, mining, and recombination through the convergent technologies of the day. Chemicals move through air and water, making the climate change. Ice sheets are melting their waters into rising oceans. Data move through digital space. Financial exchanges connect and destabilize continents. The discourse of the 1990s of the waning of the sovereign state hardly seems adequate to capture the overlapping mobilities of the chaotic present. In this welter of forces, what has happened to age-old concerns of social and political thought? Who are we? What are our entitlements? How can we defend them? What is the good, and how do we know it? Depressingly, the answer all too often seems to be a kind of fatalistic shrugging of the shoulders. Instead of being subjects with agency who can demand reason from those in power, we seem to have become subjects of reason, ruled by the impersonal forces of scientific rationality that set bounds on what good futures we can ask for, whether good is defined in terms of carbon footprints, social security, or educational entitlement. Autonomy is lost, integrity fragmented, the forces of capital and disciplining institutions are too strong to allow us to act individually and often even collectively. Critique itself seems useless, driven out of academia by demands of audit, utility, and impact. One thinks of the German poet Friedrich Hölderlin's despairing question, what use are poets in times of need, or in the incomparable German, wozu dichter in dürftiger Zeit? I want to suggest a radically different vision. It's true that we today function inside of structures that go way beyond the nation state or even those state-like institutions of school, prison, and hospital whose disciplining gaze Michel Foucault so powerfully brought to our attention. But the very webs of reason that constrain our actions today themselves open up new spaces of critique. By understanding how we got into them, 
how we wove and entrapped ourselves into those binds of seeming inevitability, we can also discern new forms of intervention, places where law can be applied and its very purposes rethought. That, I would submit in all humility, is a worthy task for STS and for international law, indeed for all of us who wish to be constructive critics and who come into this world with a thirst and a taste for social justice. For the remainder of my talk, I want to focus on some concrete examples of uh, what I've been talking about. Uh, Let's begin then by briefly historicizing the globalization of the present, because society's being on the move is anything but new. Human societies have been globalizing for millennia. Migration routes mapped by genetic fingerprints show our ancestors leaving Africa some 70,000 years ago and settling eventually into the farthest corners of the earth. Maps of language families tell similar stories, though these are, of course, much more recent. Here's one of the Indo-European diffusion from somewhere near the Caspian Sea to India in the east and eventually Ireland in the west. Compared with these histories, the age of exploration of the 15th to 17th century is not merely recent, but a blink in time. It is also Eurocentric in its imagination and in the archival records it left, but it laid the roots for connecting human bodies to territories through law, through constitutional ideas of subjects and sovereignty, citizenship, and nationhood, Clearly, when people talk about globalization being a recent phenomenon, we should take those assertions with pinches of salt, and yet, as in all matters of history, there are rifts as well as continuities. Contemporary globalization differs from all of these older histories, not so much in the fact of people and things moving around, that, as we see, is ancient news, but in the forms of subjectivity that are affected and remade in those movements. The anthropologist Arjun Apadurai calls attention to these shifts in his work on imaginaries, and for him, the work of the imagination is set out in overlapping flows of people, money, communications, ideas, and technologies. One could think of both science and law in this scheme of things as simply part of Apadurai's ideas scape, but that would miss miss out, I think, on the profoundly constitutive function of both institutions, science's role mediated and unmediated by technology in affecting our sense of possibility and our hopes and visions of good and attainable futures, what I have elsewhere called uh, sociotechnical imaginaries, and law's role in making us into the kinds of people that we want to be. The new globalization from this standpoint is new because it affects human beings who are creatures ruled by knowledge of the world and by ideas of lawfulness as much as they are entities with crying physical and economic needs. It is about the notion of subjects and subjectivity in this present era of globalization of both law and reason that I'd like to speak for the remainder of this talk. I want to approach the topic of subjectivity through examples, examples that draw on different areas of the law that are each international, environment, trade, intellectual property. What I want to do as an STS scholar is to show first how similar dynamics of fact and artifact making are at play in each domain, 
Each requires attention to very basic moves that go by well-known thematic names in STS, the demarcation problem, or how, how do we know where a category begins and ends, and similarity difference judgments, how do we tell like from like and indeed equate like with like, both sets of intellectual moves are central to the law as well, just as they are foundational to science. One could not achieve one of the prime mandates of law, in effect its Hippocratic oath, treat like cases alike, without making demarcations and similarity difference judgments. Neither, however, could scientists perform the platonic function of cutting nature of the joints without knowing where the joints are, demarcation, and how one kind of object resembles another, what things, in other words, belong to the same kind. Second, though, and this is the more unusual move, I want to show how notions of legal and political subjectivity are implicated in each of the disputes that I want to discuss in more detail. Here we return to my central theme, the constitution of subjects of reason, and by extension, the critical opportunities open to us once we see how subjectivity and reason are built together or, in my terms, co-produced. My first case concerns climate change, with its attendant metaphysical moves that have turned our invisible air into a homeland for itinerant greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide, and our financial world into a marketplace where we can trade in impalpable carbon. Air is a paradoxical thing. On the one hand, it stands for things that we're least able to touch or see or feel, the very epitome of nothingness, as when the entire fictive world of the tempest with its cloud-capped towers, its gorgeous palaces, melts into air, into thin air. At the same time, air has been a site of intense human activity for more than a century, a time of collaboration between science and law, during which we have peopled this insubstantial medium with things that we have also called upon the law to regulate. A visitor to Berlin in the summer of 2005, as of course I was, would have noticed a new sign in the buses comprising part of that city's impeccable transportation system. Berlin atmet auf, declared the decals on many bus windows, wir ziehen Feinstaub aus dem Verkehr. Somewhat freely translated, Berlin breathes free, we draw fine particulates out of traffic or perhaps out of circulation. That public transport should advertise itself as a boon to public health is perhaps not altogether surprising in our environmentally conscious times, and the contribution of vehicular traffic to urban air pollution hardly needs comment. But what is this entity, Feinstaub, that in 2005 all educated Berliners were supposed to recognize at a glance? How did it come to occupy their conceptual world? And is it, in the philosopher Ian Hacking's terms, a thing in nature, a natural kind, or a thing in society, an interactive or social kind? Before proceeding with a fuller inquiry into the nature of fine particulates, let us remind ourselves of the basis for Hacking's distinction. Hacking is a constructivist who happily concedes that the objects and ideas disclosed through science have histories, and yet he is also a realist who believes that nature at some point takes over. Natural kinds, like particulates, are simply there. 
So, as he once said, the idea of quarks may have a history, and I quote, but quarks, the objects themselves, are not constructs, are not social, are not historical. Natural kinds, like quarks, are indifferent to us and what we may think about them. Calling a quark a quark makes no difference to the quark, he said. They, quote again, bear none of their history about them. They just are. Natural kinds therefore achieve, in Hacking's terms, a stability that is not available to categories of human behavior, like child abuse, a subject that he has also written about extensively. Feinstaub, or its U.S. equivalent, fine particulates, also have a history, and the origins of that history can be traced to the law. In 1970, Congress, the U.S. Congress, enacted the Clean Air Act, the first and most significant element of an immense decade-long architectural project that brought the edifice of environmental law into being in America. A central provision of the act was the decision to set standards for so-called criteria air pollutants at levels designed to protect public health with an adequate margin of safety. There was no provision for weighing the health benefits of clean air standards against the costs to industry of complying with those standards. Foiled in its attempt to read a cost-benefit test into the law, industry chose to fight the Environmental Protection Agency, whose remit includes the Clean Air Act, on scientific grounds. Fine particulates emerged from the epic 30-year conflict between EPA's efforts to clean the air and industry's attempts to set the terms in which EPA may even define what counts as clean air. The Clean Air Act asks EPA to set national ambient air quality standards for so-called criteria pollutants, as I've said. These include suspended particulate matter, the invisible present-day descendants of the suspended soot that produced killer fogs in the first half of the 20th century and earlier, including, of course, notoriously, this very city. These include, sorry, by the 1990s, EPA was aware of a public health problem that seemed not to improve despite all attempts to improve the quality of urban air. This was the increase of respiratory illness, such as asthma, especially among inner city dwellers. The agency and its scientific consultants set out to identify the reasons. One result was the so-called Six Cities study conducted by researchers at Harvard School of Public Health. This ambitious epidemiological study found that the likely agent of the nation's growing respiratory distress was an actor, or as STS scholars who are steeped in actor network theory might say, an actant, one that had hitherto escaped the discerning eye of the regulatory state, namely fine particulate matter. In its subsequent revision of the ambient standard for ozone and particulate matter, EPA included a new provision relating to fine particulates, triggering an all-out attack from the polluting industries. The ensuing legal battles focused on a single existential question. Should fine particulates exist at all as a kind of entity that EPA or the publics it sought to protect should care about? If sufficient doubt could be cast on their causal role in air pollution-related disease, there would be no need to think of the air as containing these particular troublesome agents suspended within it. 
Plato famously thought that nature was this body with joints, and philosophy's job was to find those joints and cut nature accordingly. If the six cities study did not hold up, there'd be no need to demarcate nature along this particular joint. The very rationale for fine particulates would cease to exist. They could go the way of other now forgotten aerial kinds like phlogiston. I won't rehearse in detail the legal and procedural battles on this issue as they played out over years and decades. The conclusion was that EPA won the case, vindicated in the Supreme Court by one of the most collegial opinions to come out of a deeply divided court in recent years. Some half dozen years later, though, in the 2007 decision of Massachusetts versus EPA, a challenge to the EPA's refusal to act on global warming, the court divided again on its usual ideological lines. Justice Antonin Scalia's vigorous comments in oral argument and eventually in dissent illustrate how the dispute centered on demarcations and on judgments concerning likes and unlikes. Technically, the case raised two main issues. Did the state of Massachusetts have legal standing to sue the EPA on the issue of global warming? And was EPA justified in its refusal to treat greenhouse gases as air pollutants under the Clean Air Act? Scalia played the naturalization card most openly on the second issue. In the oral argument on the case, he tried to draw a distinction between air pollution, plainly regulated by the Clean Air Act, and global warming, which he suggested was an effect on an atmospheric system that was simply not the same as air. An exchange with James R. Milkey, Assistant Attorney General of Massachusetts, captures the justice's thinking. And it's worth looking at this text in detail because of the moves that um, a Supreme Court justice makes uh, and hold it up against this idea of judicial ignorance of science. Mr. Milkey, I had, my problem is precisely on the impermissible grounds. To be sure, carbon dioxide is a pollutant, and it can be an air pollutant. If we fill this room with carbon dioxide, it could be an air pollutant that endangers health. But I always thought an air pollutant was something different from a stratospheric pollutant. And your claim here is not that the pollution of what we normally call air is endangering health. That isn't, that isn't your assertion. It's after the pollutant leaves the air and goes up into the stratosphere, it is contributing to global warming. Mr. Milky. Respectfully, Your Honor, it is not the stratosphere, it's the troposphere. Justice Scalia, troposphere, whatever. I guess he's been listening to his children and knows that whatever is a good thing to say in such situations. He has nine of them. Um, I told you before, I'm not a scientist. And the audience laughs. Um, that's why I don't want to have to deal with global warming, to tell you the truth. This is oral argument. This is not the opinion. Um, under the express words of the statute, says Mr. Milkey, and this is 302G, for something to be an air pollutant, it has to be emitted into the ambient air or otherwise entered there. Justice Scalia, yes, and I agree with that. It is when it comes out an air pollutant, but is it an air pollutant that endangers health? I think it has to endanger health by reason of polluting the air, and this does not endanger health by reasons of polluting the air at all. 
When the Supreme Court rendered its 5-4 to four split decision in favor of the petitioners, that is for Massachusetts and the other litigants, Scalia filed a separate dissent. He again insisted on the plain meaning of the act, which in his view put global warming outside the domain of air pollution. Not surprisingly, the justice's earlier mistake about the meaning of troposphere and his admission of his lack of scientific literacy made no, made no appearance. Instead, Scalia relied on the dictionary and its monopoly on establishing the plain meaning of English words. We need look no further than the dictionary for confirmation that this interpretation of air pollution is eminently reasonable, he said, and then there's the definitions of themselves, and he finishes up by saying EPA's conception of air pollution, focusing on impurities in the ambient air at ground level or near the surface of the earth, is perfectly consistent with the natural meaning of that term. And note that this decision is embedded in a further envelope of judicial decision-making about the nature of agency discretion and when an agency has the right to interpret ambiguous words of the language for aficionados of U.S. administrative law. It's Chevron discretion that is back of the judgment that is being, um, well, Scalia's opinion that's being rendered here. He did not win. Advocates for a more proactive U.S. climate policy applauded the fact that Scalia's arguments did not, in this case, carry the day. But it's important to recognize that what was at stake for the justice here were questions of sovereignty and subjectivity that went beyond the circumstances of this particular case. Paraphrased, Scalia's dissent focused on which system of thought should govern when their injunctions seemed to conflict. The IPCC's expert but unelected and extra-constitutional authority as the declarer of binding truths about nature, in this case the climate, or the U.S. Congress's democratically ratified use of words with plain meanings accessible to ordinary people like himself. How one form of pollution or one composition of air gets understood for legal and policy purposes depends on the answer to that question. So does the issue of what kinds of human subjects we are, how we understand the risks and benefits of our world, and which institutions and discourses we can turn to in times of distress. Interestingly, on another side of the world, just this kind of question was being raised, albeit in very different terms. In their 1991 manifesto, Global Warming in an Unequal World, Anil Agarwal, the founder of India's influential Center for Science and Environment, and his then associate, later his successor, Sunita Narayan, also argued against the right of unelected expert bodies to declare the state of nature in ways that take away the right of, take away people's right to determine the conditions of their own subjectivity. Predating Scalia's contentions by almost two decades, Agarwal and Narayan also argued against recognizing all carbon everywhere as the same for purposes of creating uniform regulations and markets, while Scalia was distinguishing vertically troposphere from surface air, uh, Agarwal and Narayan were distinguishing horizontally Indian carbon from Western or Northern carbon. 
They forcibly took the position that carbon should be distinguished from carbon on the basis of the circumstances that produced the element's diffusion into air. Luxury emissions of the rich, they proposed, should not be treated as equivalent to the subsistence emissions of the poor. At stake for them, as for Scalia, years and continents away, were questions about who lays down the ground rules of political subjectivity. Just what kind of politics or morality is this, Agawal and Narayan asked, which masquerades in the name of one-worldism and high-minded internationalism. On the cover of their report, they featured the cartoon that has come to stand for the proposition that carbon is not necessarily carbon for purposes of climate policy. If concerns for justice enter the picture from the outset, then one would draw up a different constitution for the one world afflicted by climate change, a constitution in which the poor would be allowed to speak in high places. At COP21 in Paris last December, meeting in the wake of the terrorist tragedy in Paris, the French government banned public demonstrations in the interests of maintaining security. Activists gathered at the Place de la République to display in the mute symbolism of paired shoes their inability to express themselves in person as citizens of the world. When I showed this picture to my Harvard students and asked what it made them think of, many mentioned the Holocaust, particularly museums in which you see piled up shoes. Some spoke about shoes left outside of mosques. One said there were no wheelchairs for the disabled. But none of my two dozen extremely smart students noted that the barefoot billions of the world were by definition not at this Republican gathering, including the poor of whom Agarwal and Narayan asked, do these people not have a right to live? Let me talk about my two other cases in slightly more cursory fashion, not because they don't deserve the same detailed reflection and textual analysis, but in the interests of time. My next example comes from trade law and has to do with genetically modified crops as they unfolded before the World Trade Organization, the WTO. Trade cases are heaven sent for the kind of STS analysis I'm advocating for in the first instance because the trading regime so centrally depends on making sameness difference judgments when determining that governments may not discriminate in favor of their own products. Is this champagne or is it not champagne? Of course, this leads to a lot of ingenuity in product differentiation, but the basic principle remains that like commodities must be treated alike when deciding whether they may move freely across national borders. On May 13, 2003, the United States, Canada, and Argentina filed an action against the European Union for maintaining an illegal moratorium against American-made genetically modified organisms. Along with four colleagues, I decided we should run an experiment in global democracy. Could we, as social scientists from elite Western institutions, get the ear of a global governing body? Could we, as citizen experts, hold the WTO accountable to expert knowledge that we believed was highly relevant to the case and yet in danger of being ignored by the parties as well as by WTO's dispute resolution panel. In particular, we wanted to make the WTO aware 
of the socially constructed character of risk assessment and to adjust its dispute resolution practices accordingly. The fate of our effort sheds light on the high entry barriers against voices questioning established rules of reasoning in the world of global policy. The biotech products dispute arose under the Agreement on Technical Barriers to Trade, the TBT Agreement, and the Agreement on the Application of Sanitary and Phytosanitary Standards, the SPS Agreement. Both agreements acknowledge that national governments may legitimately restrict the import of products from other countries if those products threaten their citizens' health and safety. Both provisions, however, also stipulate that exceptions must be justified through risk assessment. The relevant treaty language represents risk assessment as impersonal and judgment-free and hence as an objective basis for policy. I have never yet met a risk assessor who buys this in private conversation, but that's what the law says. Um, This is consistent with the U.S. understanding of risk assessment as sound science, capable of producing a universal, translocal form of objectivity. Statements by high-level U.S. politicians of both political parties left no doubt that the United States was concerned about much more than the economic consequences of the EU's reluctance to import GM crops. Centrally implicated as well was the American approach to decision-making, a threat to the concept of sound regulatory science that underwrites the safety of products made in the United States. American officials intuitively grasped that GM crops would circulate freely in world trade only if the scientific assessments that supported them also enjoyed universal acceptance. These had to be placed, as it were, hors de combat. At the 2000 annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, I heard then-Secretary of State Madeleine Albright assert how Europeans were rejecting not only GM imports, but also science. In her words, and I quote, but science does not support the frankenfood fears of some, particularly outside the United States, that biotech foods or other products will harm human health. In 2003, press releases from the U.S. Trade Representative's office declared that the moratorium was not only illegal, but also non-science-based. This is a position that U.S. scientists and decision-makers continue to assert to this day, Uh, as I know from a recent review of a National Academy's report that I completed earlier in the week. Procedurally, the dispute went before the WTO's dispute settlement body. This is the WTO's general counsel, consisting of ambassadorial representatives of member state governments meeting together as the DSB. After required attempts at consultation and mediation, the board, through a closed process, appoints an ad hoc dispute settlement panel to review the case, consult with appropriate experts, and prepare a preliminary report. Unless an appeal is filed, the board adopts the report, which becomes final. If an appeal is filed, it's heard by the seven-member appellate body, which again files a report that the DSB finalizes. This process, as imagined, is supposed to take no more than a year without appeal and 15 months with appeal. In the biotech products case, that period lasted nearly three years. The dispute settlement panel issued its 1,050-page interim report on February 7, 2006, and the DSB adopted the final panel report 
on November 21, 2006. There is no process for allowing parties other than the disputing national governments into the dispute settlement process. At the time of our filing, the WTO website indicated that amicus briefs by third parties were a contested issue and there was no formal procedure for filing them. In part, the lack of agreement reflected the multiplicity of legal cultures represented at the WTO. Amicus briefs are recognized forms of intervention in common law systems, such as that of the United States, but they have no comparable status in civil law. Accordingly, the WTO did not officially sanction the practice, but had left it up to each panel to decide in a given case whether or not to accept amicus submissions. My colleagues and I were convinced that the U.S. position on sound science did not stand up to scholarly scrutiny. As contributors to the social studies of risk, we wanted to communicate the deeply judgmental and culturally situated character of the so-called science of risk analysis. Our team consisted of two trained lawyers, myself and David Winnikoff, then a postdoctoral fellow in my program at the Harvard Kennedy School, two sociologists, Lawrence Bush, a noted expert on food and agriculture from Michigan State University, and Brian Wynne, known to many of you as sociologist of science at Lancaster University, and a prominent British environmentalist and policy advisor, Robin Grove White, also at that time a professor at Lancaster University. We had no material resources other than our modest research budgets, and so we met at Lancaster, the Americans traveling on their own means and the British team members offering hospitality and a room rented at almost no cost from the Lancaster Friends Meeting House for us to work in. Our problem was twofold. In a field without transparent practices, especially for non-state actors, could we nevertheless intervene as if we were acting in a procedurally legitimate manner? Um, By the way, working between disciplines, one of the things you end up realizing is how often you have to construct the forum and the process in which you can make your voice heard as a legitimate representative of anything. This is a sort of meta problem that one also encounters in trying to fight these kinds of legal battles. Could we intervene as non-state actors as if we were acting in a procedurally legitimate manner then? And could we hope to gain recognition as knowledge bearers, this is the second problem, who should be heard in a domain where social science expertise seemed profoundly at odds with policy decisions, political interests, and the language of the international agreements, in short, with the governing law? On the first point, we found invaluable allies among a shadow network of NGO practitioners united by a common desire to open up the WTO's much-criticized and non-transparent modes of operation. On the second point, we had to compromise, translating our expertise and epistemic concerns into terms that the dispute settlement panel might accept as sufficiently legal and thus allow us into the deliberations in the first place. Our record ultimately was mixed. We had success in inserting a new text into the body of materials that the panel and to some extent the parties accepted and officially acknowledged. We failed to disrupt the dominant global discourse around the objectivity of policy-relevant science. Advised by experienced trade lawyers and environmental NGOs, 
We notified the parties in advance of our desire to submit a brief, and we eventually uh, sent the brief to the WTO with the support of the EU. Privately, persons working in the EU's legal and policy offices assured us that the brief had been read and noticed and made an impression. Publicly, the panel report only referred to us glancingly in footnotes, and here are the footnotes. In the course of these proceedings, we received three unsolicited amicus curiae briefs. On 6th May 2004, we received an amicus brief from a group of university professors, and they mentioned the other two briefs. These briefs were submitted to us prior to the first substantive meeting of the panel, and the parties were given an opportunity to comment on these amicus curiae briefs. And then the other footnote, we note that a panel has the discretionary authority either to accept and consider or to reject any information submitted to it. In this case, we accepted the information submitted by the amici curiae into the record. However, in rendering our decision, we did not find it necessary to take the amicus curiae briefs into account. So speaks the politics of knowledge. One other footnote listed us by name. That was our moment of glory. The panel concluded in summary that the EU had violated the SPS agreement. In addition, several individual member states had violated the agreement by adopting discriminatory measures in defiance of Article 2. Um, as an attempt to reshape global policy discourse, our brief was at best a drop in a bucket um, of the slowly accumulated scholarship contesting the U.S. narrative of regulatory science and its decontextualized objectivity. But as um, there are some additional things that happened as our text circulated elsewhere, but as political subjects wishing to break open a legally and politically sanctioned position on the nature of scientific risk assessment, we found ourselves in a distinctly subaltern position as a footnote in history. The third case involves a drug. My third example concerns intellectual property law, especially as developed in connection with generic drugs. The centerpiece of this story is a lawsuit in India involving the anti-cancer drug Gleevec, manufactured by the Swiss pharmaceutical giant Novartis. Indian firms began making and marketing the generic version of Gleevec, a crystalline form of the compound imatinib, before the formulation of the TRIPS agreement as part of international trade law. Later, after India passed a national law implementing TRIPS, Novartis filed for a patent on its version of the drug, which would have raised the price 10 times higher than the available generic, thereby taking it out of reach for most Indian patients. In 2013, the Indian Supreme Court held that Gleevec did not meet Section 3D of the New Patents Act, which guards against patent renewals based on minor improvements that do not confer added therapeutic benefits, a practice commonly known as evergreening. In the court's opinion, Novartis had failed to show that the particular form of Gleevec that it sought to patent was any more efficacious than the cheap off-patent versions already on the market. So how generalizable the case is is a matter of debate because it took shape during a period when the Indian government was assimilating its existing patent protection protections to TRIPS. 
And yet, if one reads the Supreme Court opinion, one sees some interesting moves that are less likely to show up in the intellectual property law of other countries. The Indian Supreme Court, in particular, went out of its way to underscore the non-neutrality of patent law, something that U.S. patent law experts always insist on, and the close connection between political values and intellectual property protection. The court cited with apparent approval a 1957 report on patent reform authored by another judge, and the text says that Justice Iyengar, this other judge, observed that the provisions of the patent law have to be designed with special reference to the economic conditions of the country, the state of its scientific and technological advancement, its future needs, and other relevant factors so as to minimize, if not eliminate, the abuses to which a system of patent monopoly is capable of being put. So there was much hand-wringing in the U.S. media when Novartis lost the case, but the decision settled the patentability of Gleevec only in India, and it left open a larger ethical question. How much variance between national patent systems is warranted if one accepts Justice Iyengar's contention that intellectual property law is not value-free but articulates the political and economic preferences of particular nations or regions? One indication of possible ways forward came in September 2014 when Gilead Sciences, the California-based maker of a costly drug for treating hepatitis C, signed a license with seven Indian manufacturers of generic drugs to produce a stratified global pricing system. Under the agreement, Gilead would sell its drug in India for $10 per pill, 100th the price the company charges in the U.S., In return, Indian manufacturers would pay a licensing fee to Gilead but continue marketing their generic versions in poor countries where patients would never be able to afford the higher-priced pills. This, however, was an ad hoc private agreement between pharmaceutical companies in two countries without legal or precedential value for other drugs, firms, or patient populations. One aspect of the Gleevec decision merits explicit underscoring in connection with the theme of this lecture. The Indian courts had to consider whether the Gleevec formulation for which Novartis was seeking a patent was the same or different from the one for which the patent had already expired. In deciding against Novartis on this sameness difference point, the court held that the relevant demarcation criterion was increased benefit not ease of delivery into bodies or any other technical improvement. This dispensation called attention to the unevenness of power that allows pharmaceutical companies to engage in evergreening, thereby influencing judgments as to when an innovation has occurred, when is one drug not the same as its ancestor. Yet distinctive differences among human subjects, such as ability to pay, are not part of the drug company's patenting policies. In a recent conversation with a Novartis lawyer, I was told that the Indian Gleevec decision was a disaster for India because no one, not even domestic companies, would invest in a context that left their fortunes so unsettled and vulnerable. I suppose we shall see. Let me take a few minutes now to draw together the themes from these cases and tie them back to the concerns that I laid out at the beginning of the talk. 
We stand today, arguably, at a constitutional moment no less momentous than the one that marked the age of revolutions at the end of the 18th and into the middle of the 19th century. The watchword then was liberty, and people knew very clearly whose yoke they wanted to shed. America's Declaration of Independence is a highly personal bill of attainder, a list of grievances against a monarch who, had, who was falling short, at least as the authors saw it, of meeting his obligations to his subjects. In today's age of hyper-rationality, the, sovereign, the sovereigns are far more distant, uh, and we as subjects don't even recognize how we are ruled by others' reason. But the yearning for liberty and for representation lives on as almost a universal. The little girl shown in this picture carries the same golden banner of promise as Delacroix's liberty, should we perhaps even refer to it as an oriflamme. At any rate, it is an injunction to all of us, an invitation to us as members of both academic and democratic communities that the spaces of reason are as expansive and open to critique as the face of the planet. As citizens, academics, and both, it is up to us to take the Earth's streets seriously and make them our own. Thank you. Well, thank you to Professor Jasanoff. So we have time now for maybe just a few questions or reflections and comments um, on, on that lecture. Can I ask for hands? And can I ask you to maybe just introduce yourself very briefly and to keep the question short? Thank you. Uh, Paul McGrail, Catholic Workers Group. Professor, could you... Um, thanks for the presentation. It was uh, covered a large piece of ground. Could you... In your experience, could you uh, comment on what you feel is the, um, shall we say, the difference in mindset between, uh, in the context of international negotiations, between uh, European, uh, North American, and Asian uh, negotiators, um, is, is it, and how fundamental that is to the, these, to the success or the failure of, particularly the the current. Uh, transatlantic and transpacific uh, trade packs. Um, that's uh, I mean, first of all, it's a very broad question, and I don't have any detailed knowledge of the negotiation of those trade pacts. Um, but I do have a little bit of experience in mindset terms, uh, and the part that relates to my own experience as an academic uh, is that the attitude to uncertainty and um, areas where political compromise is needed uh, are really quite different between at least the U.S. and 
Europe and whichever flavor Europe comes in, it's more than one thing. Uh, Asia is far too large a category really to talk about as Asia. Usually when Americans say Asia, what they mean is China, uh, and in particular the China of the PRC. So, um, you know, one can't even go there because uh, what the Japanese want and what the Indians want and what the Chinese want are, are often quite radically different things, not to mention Korea, Singapore, and, and so forth. Um, but, um, you know, the, I've encountered some uh, odd sort of um, overtures with regard to the trade pact, for instance. Uh, nothing ever came of this, but about a year and a half ago, I was suddenly approached by the then people who were running uh, the U.S. trade office and asked, uh, if I would consider going to Brussels and briefing them on the American position because they were being extremely intransigent. Uh, and uh, I said, you know, I'm probably not the very best ambassador for your purposes. And this person assured me that uh, actually I was exactly the right sort of person because they wanted to show that America contained reasonable people. <laughs> you know? um, this, by the way, was a similar line to what I once heard in Chile not so long ago when, when I went there as a, uh, as a guest of the U.S. Embassy, among other things. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, he wanted me to come at a time I couldn't possibly come, and then he stepped down, so that invitation was never renewed. But it's clear that in the trade office, the people who are in the front lines of negotiation do recognize that there are these kinds of broad cross-cultural differences, and, but they're not sure how to deal with it. This is spoken on the American side. Um, in the case of something like the GMO disputes, which go on and on still, uh, I know that there's been very little rapprochement on the fundamentals, and I think that this is because there is a real refusal on the part of the policy world to accept that theoretical understanding could or should play back reflexively into altering policy positions. I mean, there's a, at least on the American side, a huge um, almost contempt for the idea that theorizing has any bearing on uh, you know, we have to wake up on Monday morning and make a decision. So, you know, the, that kind of boundary drawing is very, very commonplace. And yet I think unless that is taken on board, um, we're not going to see a sort of weakening of these block-like cross-cultural formations that uh, affect negotiation but affect many other things as well. I see one, two, three more hands, so maybe we can take it in that order. Uh, David Worth from Boston College Law School. Sheila, it's good to see you on this side of the Atlantic. Um, as you're no doubt aware, the uh, WTO appellate body in the asbestos dispute, which predated the GMO uh, case, actually tried to regularize the submissions of amicus, uh, amicus briefs to uh, panels in the appellate body. It was uh, struck down by a meeting of the general counsel at which every European state spoke against the process, and ironically, the United, only one state, the United States, spoke in favor of it. Um, and it was interesting to hear all three of your examples really raise the question of the legitimacy of sovereigns to negotiate on behalf of all of us. 
um, the Paris example with uh, demonstrations being closed down and the other two uh, involving different constructs by sovereigns of, uh, of legal rules. And so my question is, to what extent would you uh, reform multilateral processes to allow the public worldwide to have some voice in them? Well, the short answer is I would reform uh, the existing rules to make it much easier. But that said, that would only be the first stage because one would still have to work out the rules of practice under which the so-called public could participate. And if one looks at amicus briefs filed in U.S. Supreme Court proceedings, they're not filed by the public. Um, for one thing, one needs quite detailed uh, technical knowledge to be able to file an amicus brief. I mean, first of all, you have to know that the procedure even exists, which is not commonplace. But for instance, in the um, fairly recent decision involving the patenting of um, uh, human genes, uh, Eric Lander of um, the Broad Institute at Harvard and MIT, you know, presidential science advisor and about as high up placed a scientific um, public figure as any in the U.S., uh, had to go and consult with a colleague of ours at the Harvard Law School in order to produce the brief, which ultimately had, I think, a decisive impact on the Supreme Court's thinking. Uh, so if Eric Lander has to himself hire a personal lawyer, I mean, it was for free, but, but you know, that it, it just gives an indication of the barriers that exist. Um, and also, the moment you allowed public access, I think you would be cracking open the democracy questions that have always surrounded NGOs and their right to be spokespersons for publics. So I think it's um, to say that I would favor greater access is easy. To say crafting the rules would be easy would, I think, be a mistake. I'm Toby from Surrey. Uh, do you think law, like science, enables people or limits them? Uh, I think law, like science, does both. Uh, and it depends a little bit on what areas of the law you're talking about. Uh, so one of the things that law does is uh, describe pathways by which you can express yourself in different ways. I mean, people, it's not for nothing that one way of talking about justice is to say that somebody enjoyed their day in court. I mean, that's a pretty common uh, uh, in a sort of popular expression in the English-speaking world. Um, we had, what, the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. I mean, you know, having forums that are delimited or demarcated by law uh, is considered extremely important in most societies where it exists. Uh, law, that law constrains is also equally obvious, and what, what I was trying to suggest with my examples is that the constraints are particularly great where the law nails down a view of what knowledge is and what right knowledge is that itself should be questionable but isn't because you're constrained both by a rendition of knowledge that is not up to snuff and by legal provisions underwriting that, that position. Um, with regard to science and technology, lots of people believe that 
technology never constrains but only liberates. Um, it's interesting that if you look at mid-century writings, this goes back to the Europe versus U.S. point from a different point of view, uh, there's a kind of monolithic statement or attitude coming out of Western Europe, even before World War II and the Holocaust, um, talking about technology as being a constraint. Whereas if you look on the American side of things, the discourse has been about technology being liberating, um, where one wants to come down as in part uh, dependent on one's own experience. And, you know, if you have a smartphone, you can begin answering the question yourself. There was another hand over here, yes. My name is Olaf Corey. I'm from the University of Copenhagen, uh, political science department. I'm, my question is about the two um, systems that you've spoken about tonight, law and science, and about the relationship between them. And perhaps you could perhaps just elaborate on when you're disappointed about the dispute settlement committee not taking your submission into account, what consequence would you have liked to have seen that legal body make of the fact that the scientific basis of political risk assessment is contested? So how does the contestedness of science fit in? Or in what way would you like to see it fit into the legal system or be used by the legal system, be acknowledged? Well, I can... Um, I mean, it's obviously a question that deserves a lot of elaboration, and I can, in spare time, refer you to an article where I've dealt with that um, in a more extensive way. Um, what I would have... I mean, to answer the various parts of your question, the, what I would have liked to see, I actually had no expectation whatever because I've dealt with American decision-making bodies long enough to know that uh, coming in from an unpopular position uh, rarely opens doors the first time around anyway. It really was an experiment as much in the capacity to gain access as uh, you know, in affecting outcomes. I honestly did not think we would... I mean, I didn't think we would get in the door, so that was kind of interesting in and of itself. But they could have done more. They could have acknowledged, for instance, that scholarship is varied on this point. They could have said that... Um, I didn't think they would go so far as to accept our argument that a de facto risk assessment had already occurred because in areas of high uncertainty, as we claimed in the brief, public deliberation is the risk assessment. I did not expect them to fall in line and say, oh, wise and knowledgeable Harvard experts, you have demonstrated to our satisfaction that this is the case. Um, I actually found the footnote position quite charming. Uh, <laughs> I mean, for one thing, it adds life to subaltern history. Uh, so uh, that that Harvard professors can also be subalterns is a kind of titillating idea, no? Um, but, um, you know, things, if you're a sociologist of knowledge, which is, uh, well, I don't like the word sociologist, but if you're a, an analyst of knowledge, then you believe that knowledge circulates in very unruly and unpredictable ways and that it's never so obvious uh, where things will come to rest. One of the things I didn't mention is that we published our brief as an article and it's had a different life in the trade law literature from what it had as a footnote in a 
panel discussion, and we were told privately that it had affected people's thinking. So, you know, to what extent that's right or wrong, I don't know. Um, So, you know, these things take time. I mean, one of the things that I take away from all of these cases and my discussion of them is that it's more important to see what the stakes are. I mean, so to see where the move of constructing similarities, for instance, is happening because every time you see a similarity or a difference judgment being made, it's a judgment, it's a judgment call. And if somebody's making a judgment call, then there should be appeal, there should be transparency of some sort, and there should be a possibility for other people to question the judgment regardless where things come out. So I think the first stage is just to create as many openings as possible where the normally invisible processes of kind-making, of similarity, difference, judgments, and so forth are going on. And this is why, to David Worth, I was saying that opening up the process would certainly be a desideratum, even if one doesn't know exactly what that opening would amount to. Yes, I see at least two more questions here. Maybe we can have the... If you put your hands high, the person with the microphone can see. Hi, I'm Brandon from LSE Sociology. Uh, Could I ask you to just reflect a little bit about the influence that STS has had on either law, legal practices or scientific practices or policymaking practices? Um, (laughs) Yes, it could be a very short reflection. Um, or it could follow the same lines of response that I gave uh, to the previous questioner. Um, I think that in Europe, many people in STS would say that there has been quite a lot of influence, Uh, at least at the level, at two levels. Um, People who do STS in quite a number of European countries, including this one, uh, are invited into policymaking bodies, Uh, have a say in those bodies. Sometimes the discourse has been picked up, like, you know, public engagement and upstream engagement in UK policy discourse are among those things. Um, I think there's a much more homogeneous intellectual elite on this side of the ocean, at least in terms of disciplinarity. I mean, because the communities are smaller and possibly a little less arrogant, uh, the uh, conversations inside of fields tend not to be quite so exclusionary as they tend to be in, in the U.S. So a field like STS has not had as much trouble being shunted aside by fields like sociology or political science or made not to exist, you know, in effect, as, as in the U.S. So I think that... Um, one would have to say that in terms of access and entry, uh, there's been considerable openness on this side of the Atlantic. In America, it's much more limited. Uh, There are particular areas like bioethics where uh, people are so desperately looking for a thing called ethics that they will even reach to STS and call it ethics under certain circumstances. Um, But in sort of high-level policy circles, like does the president's Office of Science and Technology Policy or its science advisor ever reach out to a field like STS, well, this one is a natural experiment because 
I was colleagues with the said science advisor for 12 years before he occupied his position, and I've never been called on to comment, even on things like, you know, they do a study of big data and its policy implications. There's no STS scholar involved. So I think that the disciplinary um, preferences, but also what I call civic epistemologies, operate differently in different countries, and that affects the... um, the recognition. But recognition is not the same as influence. And on the serious influence side, it's a very mixed bag. I think that, um, you know, the truism that revolutions happen when the last holder of the outmoded belief has died, you know, may be right in this case, and the ball is in the court of people like you. Yes, the gentleman in the middle here. Thank you. So a few years ago, uh, Professor, you gave a talk at UCL. So I thought it's a good idea to come again. Is this working? Sorry? Yes, it is working. So uh, the three examples are judiciary um, um, role. Um, you gave the three cases. Do you think um, on a larger scale, um, actually, though uh, we are disappointed about the judicial Outcomes, but on larger scale, you know, considering uh, this uh, innovation, considering uh, the, uh, the development of the economy, or considering the deference uh, to the democratic uh, you know, uh, role, do you think that there are some kind of uh, consolation um, for the way the cases go? Um, yeah. Certainly, you, know, you can't resolve uh, these tensions among different interests. But long-term speaking, probably you know, through one way or another, through uh, scientists like you, uh, other um, uh, you know, uh, enlightenment movement or democratic uh, uh, you know, um, uh, decision-making, will eventually get there, you know, get the ideal situation? No, I mean, of course, that's a really great question, uh, and it's a fact that in picking examples for case studies, one tends to focus on cases that generate a lot of documentation, and that tends to be judicialized because there's lots and lots of record, and, and it's very good and useful to ask, are there less formal ways in which change is happening? And of course, one does want to have a hopeful attitude to the world and not a hopeless attitude to the world. And I hope that by showing a picture of a small child waving a golden flag, I was doing something to suggest that there was hope in the world of a different sort anyway. Um, But, um, you know, it's the half-full, half-empty point because one can tot up the evidence on the gloomy side and on the optimistic side and and come to very different conclusions. First of all, I don't think that all three of my cases are hopeless cases at all. I mean, so on the climate change one, uh, right-thinking, right-thinking people would say that, after all, the Supreme Court did decide in the correct direction on climate change, and it has had an impact. For one thing, I think that it gave a boost to people, people's creativity in America 
to think about how existing legislation, even if it's very old, relatively old, like the Clean Air Act, can be repurposed. And this is one of the beauties of the law. I mean, one of the creative dimensions that I think people misunderstand and, and don't quite reckon with, that sometimes quite old texts can have different kinds of meaning breathed into them. So right now, President Obama is obviously not able to achieve anything through legislation of a new sort, and Congress will not go along with him, but he has ingenious enough lawyers helping him that are trying to figure out how you can, for instance, go after the electric utilities through the existing Clean Air Act and use mechanisms there in a uh, economic and legal mechanisms to force a degree of reduction uh, that could be comparable to actually uh, a new set of uh, provisions being enacted altogether, which is not about to happen. So even that one is not a, a non-optimistic case. We've already talked about the WTO case and how it can be read as at least a door opening that has permitted a different set of attitudes towards both risk and towards the idea of openness. And the Novartis case, the Indian Supreme Court actually, I think, wrote a very interesting opinion, which is distinctive for the very different ways in which it talks about intellectual property rights, and it puts on the table that intellectual property rights are not, as American lawyers like to claim, a totally technical domain and free of values. I mean, I think it contradicts that proposition very frontally and centrally. So I don't see the Novartis decision as being a failure of democracy on a global scale. I see it as an assertion of a different interpretive discourse from the one that you would have got just from the U.S. Supreme Court. So you know, that that leaves open all sorts of things about generalization, about scaling up, and so on and so forth. But I don't think that uh, the... Uh, I mean, I would not like to leave you with the impression uh, that I find these cases to be door-shutting cases. Rather, I think each one analyzed in a particular, through a particular set of lenses, shows where intervention is possible. And even the WTO case is a case where, in my own bones and in my own body, I intervened in a place that I didn't think was very easy to get into. And since I did it with a law firm of myself and one other assistant, uh, you know, I think that that speaks well for the limited resources you need to make some kind of uh, dent in the world. There, there are two more questions. Okay, yes, yes. Hello. Thank you very much for the lecture. Uh, it's good to see uh, the flesh behind the ideas. Um, so actually my question was, so in general what we tend to do is try to influence the, the national uh, decision-making institutions, which is very hard, as you proved uh, yourself. It may be national or international. Uh, my question is, so now in Europe, and I think to a certain extent um, elsewhere in the world, there are a lot of initiatives, uh, for governmental initiatives actually, uh, to incentivize entrepreneurship. So you see a lot of startups that are, trying, that, that are, that are uh, being built, um, especially here in the UK with Tech City. So my question is, and these startups uh, have very young people and very energetic and open-minded people uh, who are uh, trying to make a difference. Uh, really. So my question is actually, don't you think that it would be um, more interesting or more fruitful 
to sort of try and distill science and bring science, make science more accessible for these people who really have, uh, need, who need it actually, and who are looking for it but don't always know how to interpret it or um, don't even know it exists. Um, um, again, a very um, interesting question discussing which could keep us here for many days and weeks. Um, but, um, you know, the idea that young people with energy need knowledge and expertise, I'm not going to say no to that. Uh, I will be a little bit uh, dubious if uh, teaching them science is the way in which the need for knowledge is put because um, one of my sort of disciplinary orientations is that, uh, first of all, one should be symmetrical. That is, people have lack of expertise about a lot of things, not just science. Many people are quite ignorant of basic facts about democracy and the institutions of their own countries. And I think that getting people to understand something more about the way law works is every bit as noble a calling as trying to get people to understand how science works. And secondly, I think what's important to disseminate, given that not all of us are going to become technical experts in anything, is the how it works point, not what it is. I mean, so not here are 10 scientific facts, learn them, and you will know how to do your job better. But how is it that you would go about selecting what is reasonable science or better science and so on and so forth? And, and what are the obstacles? I mean, so uh, when you talk to people about three minutes about development and the problems of air pollution in developing countries, the word cook stoves comes up because these cause a lot of pollution. They're domestic uh, simple-minded items, and they're often operated in closed spaces, and they create uh, respiratory illnesses, and all, all this is epidemiologically known. However, I can tell you, based on my own experience here, that um, there's something like a 30-year history of American environmentalists trying to deal with cookstoves and solve the cookstove problem, and it has not been solved. You would think that I mean, a cook stove, for God's sake. I mean, it's a little thing. Uh, and how much ingenuity could it take to make it relatively pollution-free? So what's needful for the young startup NGO that's trying to improve people's public health and have applied to the Gates Foundation for money because they will throw money at things called public health and things called entrepreneurs, maybe one should do a case, I mean, maybe what should be taught is a case study of why a relatively simple-seeming problem has not lent itself to solutions 30 years down the line. Now, that is, I could be accused of being pessimistic by this gentleman here, but I think that it's actually a way to learning to understand, you know, the sort of guts of the problem, the sort of architecture within which types of problems emerge, and not just learn more science. Um, thank you. I'm Yuan from SOAS Law School. Um, I, I want to have a short reflection on this question, especially on the um, Bolivic case you mentioned, because I personally happen to follow this case uh, from distance and involved in some of the um, discussions before. Um, reflection is, as you said, I totally agree, it's not uh, a gloomy case. And uh, in, in, in fact, the activism in India carried on by using uh, 3D 
um, in challenging the traditional way of dealing with intellectual property. So that's very interesting trend uh, that has been going on. Um, and my question is relates to the impact of the case at a national level and what kind of global response to this nowadays. Because even though it's been looked as a leading case from you know public interest perspective, however, it hasn't really been um, carefully studied discussed and acknowledged by mainstream kind of policy forums in intellectual property, especially in WTO and WIPO. Uh, I happened to discuss, for instance, two officers in WIPO and WTO. Uh, they often run trainings. I said, why don't you make Glibe case uh, one of the case studies? And they said, it's very difficult. You can't get approval and so on. So always it's European cases and US cases were discussed. Uh, and as a training material for the officials in developing countries, that one of the policy impact, impact is all of the discussions at the Geneva level and um, you know you, uh, you, New York level are still centric, you know Western centric in a sense. So those develop uh, new thinking from emerging countries like India with a very brief judicial interpretation of IP. It's very difficult to enter into this sphere. So what, from your perspective, the global and national could be further connected in this sense? Thank you. Um, I mean, look, it's a very complex set of things. Um, every time I hear that India is an emerging country, the hairs stand up on the back of my neck about a country that has the oldest traces of civilization, some of them that are known. Uh, so there is the discourse. Uh, and one needs to challenge the discourse. And I believe I do it by my presence. Um, so there's that level. Um, if you're asking pedagogically how to get experiences from non-Western countries into Western thinking, you know, that is a really huge challenge. Um, the um, layers of non-understanding, even at the formal level, are uh, mind-boggling. Uh, I mean, so for instance, just the Indian Supreme Court case, I don't think many Western lawyers are, or law students are aware of the fact of the kind of role that the Indian court plays, this goes back to your question, as a court of first resort almost, where the rest of the political system has failed and the extreme importance of the writ petition provision um, in energizing the NGO sector and in maintaining Indian civil liberties. I mean, I, just, I think this is just a dimension that's not understood, and it's certainly not understood in a country like the U.S., where rendering advisory opinions and not having a case or controversy, these are constitutionally prevented, so the very mode of reasoning, the very kinds of interventions would not be understood almost in, in that legal system. So there's a serious educational translational problem uh, and I don't think that the uh, fact that we train law people to become essentially uh, workers for wherever capital goes is uh, uh, attuned to the idea that we should understand international and transnational law down to the cultural details either. I mean, so um, as you may know, the um, 
applications to American law schools have dropped by something like 40 to 50 percent in the period since 2008. I see that as a brilliant natural demonstration of what the law does because when the economy falters, law falters, so it gives you about as tight an indication of how the two systems are tied together. Well, in that case, the, neither law training nor law understanding, especially in an area like intellectual property, which is going where innovation goes, uh, none of those are going to militate in favor of developing understandings of economies that are not felt to be booming and, that, and uh, countries whose um, sort of paradigmatic value is felt to be not particularly great. Now, the one thing I will say is that for American law, probably French law counts as every bit as exotic and not worth learning as Indian law, so there isn't any discrimination that way. There's just a great deal of provincialism uh, in a field that actually encourages to some degree provincialism, but you know the presence of all of you in the audience today suggests that at least inside of LSE that provincialism does not obtain. You're not from LSE, but you're here tonight. Well, our time really is up, and I need to, I need to uh, draw the formal proceedings to an end. But one thing I do want to do before we go is to uh, thank Oxford University Press for their support uh, for this event and also for the journal itself. I notice two of our colleagues here and friends and colleagues from OUP, Emma Thomas and Caitlin Deary, here, and it's important that I thank OUP for the wonderful support that they provide to the journal. And, of course, a thank you again to Professor Jasanoff for agreeing to give the talk for all the work that goes into it and, of course, for the dynamic ideas that we've had this evening. Thank you so much. <laughs>